What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pivot Podcast. I get to interview artist Seth Price. My partner, Michael, and I first discovered him. Michael is an MFA, Masters of Fine Arts student at SVA, the School of Visual Arts. And one of his first essay assignments was to read an essay called Dispersion by Seth Price. So I love vicariously getting master's degrees and getting to read everything I can for friends and especially with Michael. I knew nothing about the art world, despite the fact that my dad has been a painter since he was five years old. So for the first time, despite all my dad's trying to take me to museums and take me to his studio with him, I decided, all right, that's it. Between my dad and my boyfriend, it's time. I've got to learn what's going on here. And thus started an epic journey into learning about Seth and his work. Um, quick, a brief bio on Seth. He's an American multidisciplinary artist who works in a wide range of media. His current ex- exhibition, Social Synthetic, is now on view at the Brandhurst Museum in Munich. After traveling from the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, and coincidentally, when Michael and I were in Amsterdam, I went, I was giving a keynote at booking.com. We went to the Stedelijk and our minds were blown. We're on the second floor. It's this whole Seth Price multidisciplinary exhibit. And in the last room on the top floor is a movie playing. And Michael and I sat in this theater mesmerized, not just by the visuals, but by the ideas, by the thinking behind it. And our jaws hit the floor. We just said, we we have to find out more about this guy. So we start Googling Seth. We start looking for what has he written? Where can we find this video? Where can we find this thinking that he's so captured the heart of what it means to be an artist, what it means to try and make a living from art, what's going on in the state of the art world and beyond. And so uh, language disclaimer, if you have kiddos around, this will have explicit language simply by the nature of uh, one of the titles of Seth books. So now's the time to hit mute or pause if you need to have any small children leave the room. Needless to say, we found his book, Fuck Seth Price, and it was $35 on Amazon. And we remember thinking, okay, that's a little pricey, but have to have it. Probably would have paid $100 for this book. Got it. And our lives have never been the same since. So how's that for an intro? Welcome, Seth. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Your book, Fuck Seth Price, is one of our most gifted and recommended books, And I sent it to my dad, who I mentioned as a painter, and he gave you a review on Amazon. My dad, it actually changed. (laughs) He's working on some essays called Distill the Zeit about art and architecture and evolution and science. So anyway, my dad said the title is As Good as Literature Gets. And then he wrote, this is the finest, funniest, most incisive book dealing with art and culture that I have read in the past 40 years a sort of book of common prayer for all artists entering New York City. Don't get off the bus plane train without it. <laughs> so, wow. thank you, Seth Price. <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks for um, 
Wow, I feel like I, I need to read the Amazon reviews. Um, there's probably <laughs> some reviews that aren't that charitable on there, too. Well, that's what's so funny about the title of the book, Fuck Seth Price. It's like you almost have already <laughs> cut out the critics, or at least addressed yeah, yeah. the critics. Can you actually yeah. tell me how you decided to title it that? Um, I can't I can't remember the whole um, process of thinking, but it. I know that it felt like it was not a title for a piece of literature. It felt like an art title. Mm. Um, and in the book was thinking about, um, literature and writing in the non-art world and writing fiction, what fiction was doing today. And then that's, that title, um, is something you wouldn't see at the strand on the fiction. Oh, well, maybe you would, but, um, it's certainly not mainstream literature. Um, and it, it felt like taking a risk. It's kind of a stupid title also. Um, and I wasn't comfortable with it. Um, so I had to kind of let it marinate for a week or two and then, you know, canvassed my friends and some said, you have to do that. You know, when are you, when else can you call something by that title and you know, have it have the same meaning? You know, you can call a drawing by that title, but who even is paying attention to some random drawing? Um, and another friend said, don't do that. That's the, the worst idea. Um, but I can't remember when it tipped over into, um, deciding to do it. Mm. It's interesting what you said that it's more along the lines of the title of an art book or by an artist to have it be. What, yeah. what do you mean by that? It feels like a move of some kind. It feels kind of like snarky and and um, and nasty and, mm -hmm. and stupid um, at the <laughs> same time as, you know, this kind of like, um, like, like kind of like getting one up on the haters. And um, right. it's there's something that could be read as not serious about it. Um, and these are all things that art plays with maybe a little bit more than literature in, in, in the realm of titles anyway. That's a great point because a lot of people listening may have been in the position I was in of really not knowing much about, especially contemporary art and that titles are an art of themselves. It seems with contemporary pieces, because we all know mm -hmm. the familiar trope that, well, I could have done that, you know, of people looking at contemporary art. Mm -hmm. But sometimes then the title, the description, it adds meaning to the piece. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, you know, why would somebody do that? Um, right. And, um, and then you maybe want to figure out exactly what's going on in the move of doing something that's maybe not a good idea. Um, and that's something that I feel with, with art making is um, trying to explore the things that make me uncomfortable and that feel like bad ideas. And sometimes they simply are bad ideas and you end up leaving them alone. Um, but sometimes the thing that makes you think it's a bad idea, um, is the, the live part of it, um, that has some charge to it that keeps it ultimately interesting and turns into, you know, a year later, you're like, God, I'm so glad I did that. That was a good idea. <laughs> right. Well, that's what I find interesting that hearing you say you were uncomfortable at first, and I'm using this title as a proxy for, as you said, like all of the directions we could go in art, creativity and writing where you were uncomfortable. How do you suss out what you just described when it's uncomfortable in a good way? And, and even now, maybe looking back on the title of this book, do you feel that you went with uncomfortable in a good way? And now it's a good idea in hindsight? Or do you feel differently? Um, I'm glad I did it. Mm -hmm. I, there were a lot of other titles that were knocking around. Um, but it's, it's kind of, um, it's a title that sticks with you. And I think that the friend was right who had said, when else are you going to do it? I think um, if I had kind of 
picked up that idea and turned it over and then put it down again, I probably never would have gone back to it. Um, so I'm glad at that point in my life it suggested itself and I went for it. Um, and yeah, now I, I wouldn't say I'm proud of it is the wrong word, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad I, I, I kind of went for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I often feel that way, like the topics that I talk or speak or write about that I'm the most uncomfortable with, they are the juiciest. Those are usually are. the ones pointing to something that's going to have an impact on people one way or mm -hmm. another, or that uh, or yeah. an inner truth that I somehow need to get out. It's such a great commentary about even the, the world of art critics, because you're in the art world, even though this is written as a novel in the third person. I think if someone is used to having people review their work, whether as an artist or a writer, it just kind of makes the, that community smile and laugh a little bit like, oh, he just went and did it. And it kind of mm -hmm. takes the sting out of anything anyone could say, because the title is already says it. Yeah. And there's a lot of kind of negation and negativity in the book and kind of thinking about that and how that works with art. I mean, the idea that you might want to do something that's a bad idea or that makes you uncomfortable. That's already kind of inverting a normal process. Um, like when I was, I was teaching at, um, at the school of visual arts a long time ago, and it was an intro video class. And I was not much older than the students. Um, maybe, maybe like eight, 10 years older. Um, but they were freshmen in, in college who had just showed up in Manhattan and in the art world and I came up with an assignment. Um, I had a hard time thinking of assignments, but the assignment that worked the best in the end was telling them to make a bad video um, because somehow these were kids really who had no idea, had never heard of Andy Warhol um, in a lot of cases and hadn't been to Chelsea to see the galleries. They were just getting their feet on the ground. Um, and I guess I mean to say they didn't have a lot of, a lot of them didn't have much confidence um, and telling them to make a bad video mm. somehow like opened the floodgates because they started doing once you remove the idea of taste or some uh, standard of, of um, quality. I mean, you, you say you're removing that, but in fact, you're just putting in another standard. You're giving them um, freedom to shape something that that takes away all the barriers. Um, and they were coming back with these incredible videos. I love it. I love the assignment. And it, it makes me think about the Marcel Duchamp perspective of there's retinal art, which looks good to your eyeballs. And then there's art, which might be mm -hmm. making a statement. Like you said, the idea is not for art to necessarily be pleasing to those or, or what you mentioned about taste and visuals, but actually there's so much freedom if we free ourselves from those constraints, like you asked your students to do. Yeah, and that there's a different that there are different ways of being pleasing or finding mm. something pleasing, right? That it's um, the idea of pleasing being something beautiful. First of all, it sounds simple, but it's not because um, it's hard to even say what beautiful is. You know, any you could say any good artwork is beautiful. I'm curious why you decided to write in the third person. Yeah, it was like assigning somebody to do a bad video because once you're <laughs> writing about a made-up character you can say all kinds of stuff and and things that i think about come out but they mix with things that i'm just speculating about that's what justifies calling it a, a novel in a lot of ways it's not a novel but it, it allowed me to to be free i think i was just looking for a style that would allow me to write mm. um and i kind of think that it with a lot of my work 
maybe this is the same for other people, but I, I find that when you find the voice or the style, then things can just roll. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's all you really want. Even if you don't understand where it's going, um, finding a style that makes expression even possible. Oh, that's so true. For me, it's really hard to get in the flow that you just described. It's hard for me to get to a place where I enjoy writing and the ideas are coming. So I love what you're saying about give yourself the freedom to figure out a style that just allows that in the first place, even if you don't know where it's going. Yeah, and it may be nonsensical. And um, I don't know, in the end, you know, the book, the book is nonsensical. If you take it as a plot, it's like a failed piece of fiction. But trying to do that kind of allowed me to do other things, which did work, I think. Well, it's funny, if the fiction plotline aspect of it, quote, failed, and I'll just say in quotes, because that itself is very funny and thought provoking. The original thinking that it unveiled from you along the way is priceless. But if I had to describe it, I would say it's a treatise on art and thinking and the career of an artist on originality, on production, on art as business. And can that even work? Can those two things go together? I mean, really wide range of subjects, but I can see how they all tie together. I want to read an excerpt that everyone can hook into about American culture. And it also so beautifully speaks to your writing. American culture, he mused, rested on a kind of fundamental folklore, which had something to do with infinite mutability and the interchangeability of all things. This manifested in some obvious ways that supported the ideological framework of a free market democracy. For example, that a virgin territory could be hewn and shaped into a mighty nation through work and discipline, that the citizens of that nation were equal, none better than any other, and that a poor man here might transform himself into a wealthy man. It was apparent also in less obvious ways. For instance, in a comic strip about a man who became a spider, which itself became a TV show, and thence a movie, from which someone made a play and a musical, plus lunchboxes, dolls, and video games. Or the fact that Joe Schmo could become a pop star, and then an actor, and then an entrepreneur, with a line of clothes, perfume, or furniture. But surely art was different? Question mark. I love how you speak to American culture, and this is a theme throughout the book about American culture of work and discipline and production and making things happen. And even this, this idea of a comic strip about a man who became a spider, which becomes a play and then ultimately lunchboxes. And yet, for artists, it can feel very conflicting of do you become part of that machine, even when it starts working for you and you're getting shows and galleries? Or do you step outside of it somehow? I would love for you to speak to any aspect of that that's interesting to you. Well, there's an idea that you would pursue art or become an artist or make art, do art. But the career of an artist is uh, a career and it's a business. It's a machine. And um, those things can be alienating when you've um, all along been thinking that it's also about autonomy and freedom and self-expression and um, uh, some sort of internal quest and and putting those things together I mean that's a problem for anybody who's trying to be a creative person um, and make a living in the society and I think that's one of the, the big things that the book was about is trying to understand how to be those those two things some uh, a kind of a person that has an internal 
you're, you're seeking something internally, but at the same time, you're moving externally through this world that um, is kind of chewing up what you're doing and then digesting it um, and showing it back to you. And that's that's something that you use to then as a compass to plot your next moves. And it's this back and forth and how to manage that. It's it's really confusing. Mm. You describe very poignantly this part in the book. And again, I know it's a novel, so it may or may not reflect your career exactly. But in the beginning, early in, in an artist's career, there's a striving for getting attention and recognition and press and getting into galleries and getting uh, shows and getting awards and being in a museum. And all of these things help validate the artist and help create a career so that you don't have to wait tables and you can create the art. And yet after all of that, it doesn't ultimately serve the art, that all of that feels empty in a sense, because, and and then at that point, you can have all of those things. And the only remaining journey is the one on the inside, really, for the artist. And that right. none of those things can really bring any lasting source of happiness. Yeah, I think that those things are amazing. You know, the um, recognition and money, I mean, that basically sets up a machine that allows you to make art. And if you're lucky enough to get to that point, I think what happens maybe for a lot of people is what you're talking about, where you realize now I'm, I'm here, I can make art, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to, um, to have that opportunity. But the question of where to go with the art um, is not solved by any of these factors, right? These are enabling factors that allow you to have the time and space to to work on that question. Um, so it's like a trap door just opens up again. Um, and I think you can see, you know, there's a great fear that an artist will make it to a certain level where they're being enabled by all these other, these factors and this kind of machine that's set up. Um, and then they, they sometimes freeze because... Um, because what do you do with all this freedom, really? Mm. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't solve the problem of making good art. Mm. Have um, you and, and experienced that? That that fear? Yeah, or just reaching that point where you have the freedom. Now yeah. What? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think mm. that was part of the um, the thinking that went into the book uh, was realizing that um, I had been lucky enough to get to the point where everything was moving. You know, I quit my day job in 2005 and um, I think, I guess it was in 2012, I was part of this um, international art exhibition called Documenta. That's um, one of the big um, exhibitions in the art world. It's um, either all or partly funded by the German government. It happens every five years um, for, I don't know, 30 million euros or something. Um, and it draws people from all over the world. <clears throat> and I was in this and came back from that. And I think I felt like, okay, right. I can do lots of things, but that, but, but now what is this? What I, um, where do I want to go with this? And those questions made me think about writing the book. Mm. And now what would you say is your relationship to freedom? Like freedom is a big theme. You describe how, Artists generally fall into four main motivations, freedom, craft, money, and then the scene, the social scene. <laughs> yeah. That was yeah, yeah. so brilliant. That was like definitely a simplification. And, um, but it, it felt like, yeah, every, you know, every book needs a list. <laughs> 
totally. <laughs> People totally. love those. Oh I yeah, that's those. true. And and I write and read mostly nonfiction, so it's perfect. It's like speaks to my nonfictiony list. People yeah, in heart. it's it's great. Um, it just breaks things down for you. Well, how about for you? If those four things were in a pie chart, what's the what's the distribution? I think in that in that passage, the book is pretty accurate. The narrator calls it as you know, freedom. This is what's most important to me, and I think that was that I was basically speaking in that passage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's, um, the artists I like are the ones where you see a freedom. It might be radically different from one artist to the next. Um, it could be a free gesture and line and painting, but it could also be a freedom in how you manage over the course of a lifespan. And, you know, the individual works aren't as important to me. It's more about how a person has lived their life. Mm-hmm. I guess the making of the art for me is totally distinct from um, enjoyment and like, I mean, I wouldn't want to live with any of my own art, um, for example. Michael, Um, my partner says that too. Like, we should get your art in here. Yeah. I don't want to see it when I'm done. Yeah. It's like the, yeah, I think it's, it's something I have to do and, and it, and I, and I enjoy doing it, but then the actual works of art, sometimes I'm, I'm happy with them and I wouldn't mind looking at them. And, but that's, that, it's almost completely disconnected from the other part. I love what you said about the artists you admire are the ones who exhibit freedom somehow, whether it's freedom of their line in the work, freedom of what they pursue or freedom of how they've set up their life. And in the book, you say ultimate freedom would mean having just enough money not to have to think about money and not to have to work all of the time. And that's certainly, that's how I feel as far as like, I have no desire to have full-time employees in my business. I've been running my business seven years. Just don't want it. Like, I just want the freedom. Even if it means, oh, I might make less money. Um, And then I want to read this other passage where you say, artists rightly prize the uncommon ability to burrow deeply into one medium or practice over the course of a career. Rarer and more challenging still was the ability to shed the mantle of a well-functioning methodology and gird oneself for unknown new directions. But why stop there? The truly important freedom, he believed, and the most rarely achieved, was the ability, the readiness of will, to jettison an entire artistic career precisely when it was going well. This was the nuclear option. And you did something somewhat like this when you went on your mission to remove as much of yourself as you could from the internet, which I happen to think I felt so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) You tried to take a year long hiatus. And this is a quote, you said, the dumb goal of getting all my profiles and interviews and photos removed from the internet, that because artists are conditioned to seek visibility, not only for their work, but for their persona. So it seems like in a way you were like pulling the nuclear option there. I'm, I didn't, not, no, not really. There are, art, there are artists who, who have done that, who have really um, turned their back on the art world and art making. Um, I, I into that zone, really. Um, I think I just needed to pull back in a lot of ways to be able to write that book. Mm. Um, and yeah, to flirt with the idea of, um, of like renunciation. Um, I thought that was interesting at the time, um, to be able to, to pull back from those that are running really well and really smoothly, Mm. um, because it is a business. And if you are successful as you're necessarily, I think, involved in 
a kind of machine, you know, a network of, of people and, and really good people and people who are helping you and people who are buying and selling your work and talking about it and writing about it, um, other artists. And this is all good stuff. It's just that when you become part of a machine, I guess it's, um, for me, I felt like it was good to, to pull back and think about how I was functioning mm-hmm. in that machine and, um, and be able to also drop out of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, that's, it's, it's not quite true because I continued to be an artist. I, I made this book. The book became part of what I do as an artist. And here I am back again making artwork and showing and we're talking about it on this podcast. So, you know, it'd be disingenuous to say I was really dropping out of the art world or something. That makes right. sense. Yeah, I guess I meant more uh, dropping out of the internet to some extent yeah. or just the machine of maintaining a persona, as you said. And yeah. It was like a relief yeah. to see that you did that because the persona and the social media thing can be so exhausting. Just to yeah, feel the pressure I, of totally. That. I think it was just my way of trying to like understand that. And I think I've been trying to navigate the persona and social media for years now. I, I guess I... I think I started out with a Facebook account um, pretty early, and then I think I killed the account in 2009 or 10 or something. And um, and then I kind of like came back to Instagram and then left. And um, now I kind of lurk on Twitter and just use it as a news feed. But I guess I was trying to wrestle with that because I think when did I start doing that? Like 2013 or something. Um, I think Instagram was really just flexing its muscles in the art world um, and in, in general becoming this huge force. And it felt like I needed to, I don't know why I did that. I mean, it's impossible to remove yourself from the internet um, for most people. And I guess I did it to try to, um, to prove something to myself. And then in the end, you know, some people remove things, um, but it's kind of futile. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just needed to do it to process something at the time. Did it shift anything or inform how you balance that today of putting yourself um, out there versus just doing your doing your work? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think I just kind of like grew up a little bit and was like, who cares? Like, just do this stuff. I mean, I think I was, um, you know, there was a year there where I was just or more than a year just saying no to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, shows, but also, you know, any kind of publicity or press or, you know, this interview I wouldn't have done. And then I think I kind of came back and was like, whatever, you know, you can, you can make a big deal out of it or not. And, and I thought now I'm just going to say yes to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, it felt like I had to decide all or nothing, which is, um, kind of childish, but like, I kind of didn't want to like assess the value of one thing or another thing. And at first that led me to just say, forget it. I'm not doing anything. And then it was like, let's do everything. If that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Ideally, it's not a persona. It's just you get to just be yourself. But do you feel pressure to like maintain your Instagram account, post to it, or do you just let that go? And for you at now, it's more about saying yes to incoming opportunities. Um, I, l- I let that go. I'm not on Instagram. I felt like it would be a lot of fun. I just didn't. Partly, it was just um, just a decision about how to spend my time and energy, I guess, because um, I see, you know, friends and my partner, everybody's obsessed with it. I, and it looks great. Um, and I enjoy it. I just, um, and then there's, I mean, and then there's some small part of me that doesn't like, uh, kind of 
working for those companies, which is what it feels like. What, how do you balance giving yourself kind of space and time and isolation or like we would call it hermit mode where mm -hmm. you're just totally inward? And then what's the balance of then when you put yourself back out or allow for that in influx and incoming set of requests? Yeah, that's tough. And I'm not like really good at, at managing that. That's why I was kind of like, you know, swinging into the like, total refusal mode and then going back into just like accept everything because I clearly can't like <laughs> navigate the middle ground. Um, but it's working fine so far. I'm just, uh, I don't know, just like trying to, um, yeah, it's like kind of discovering how you relate um, as a kind of like social being or something. I don't know how to explain it, but um, it feels like it feels like some like doing some growing up or something. I never feel like I'm getting this right. Really. I could just stay in and read all day and just yeah. never go to coffees or have calls or have meetings. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I probably to some extent, because I can see the way, you know, you or Michael or my dad, are able to just swing into total cave mode. And I've done that every now and then, but I probably go the middle ground to to my detriment. Like I should say more to more than I do, to say no to more than I do, to create just, I don't know. I, it's, I think it's so important to create anything to be able to hear yourself think. And yes. it's very yeah. easy and very fast to fall into just getting inputs from others yeah but some people work inputs. well with that with just kind of ravenous um kind of acceptance and like engagement and uh, processing things really quickly um and that's also kind of like interesting to to think about as a mode mm -hmm. um and what it would do to go into that mode and then, then i think about the model of like like free improvised music where oh, cool. people you know get together I mean, get together in a, in a more or less, it's a, it's a group formation. It's social. It doesn't have to be in front of an audience. It could just be um, playing for themselves. But it's a group situation where you're reacting in real time to um, what other people are doing. But you're also off on your own thing. Um, and that is kind of a model also, which is really compelling, I think. And people who can um, improvise, I mean, that's that's like the holy grail. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, I don't play music like that but that's something i'm really i really admire what do you admire about it well that it's somewhere between the hermetic kind of mode and like full social engagement mm. um that um i mean any playing music in any formation is somewhat like that but when it becomes improvised music um and it's really this kind of real-time conversation with rules, but rules that are meant yeah. to be broken. I mean, that's gets really complicated and interesting, I think. And this goes back to our conversation around freedom too, where there are just enough constraints or the business is functioning just well enough to create the freedom mm -hmm. to improvise. Yeah, well, to, and to improvise on an artwork that is working just enough that you can finish mm -hmm. it, right? Like it's not you know, you're not trying to make like good things necessarily, because what does that even mean? It's like you're trying to get it to just enough of a phase or structure that you can kind of move on to the next thing. And then it's mm -hmm. done its job. Um, yeah. And I think that the kind of improvised music idea, and I don't even know how I would put that into practice myself, but what's interesting about it is it allows for, as you said, this kind of presence, but you can also recede. Um mm -hmm. 
you know, if you listen to free jazz, there's always there's space, there's density, there's people who can, you know, you can drop back and then you can come back in again. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a lot of rules and a lot of freedom at the same time. That's what's so fascinating mm -hmm. about it. Do you play any instruments? Um, like none. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I make music, but, um, How? but I can't, well, over the years, I mean, I don't know. We're actually about to reissue, um, this, uh, this record I made 20 years ago where I was doing bass and, you know, guitar and drums and stuff and singing. Um, and I've done records with, um, with synthesizers, mm -hmm. with, you know, MIDI controlled gear, drum machines and keyboards and stuff, samples. Um, so I, I mean, I do like to make music, but I, I, I'm really not, I, I can't play anything. <laughs> What's next for mm -hmm. you? Um, oh, I'm, definitely in like chrysalis mode right now mm -hmm. um because of these shows in the last year the survey show and a couple of other things that were going on um i don't know i'm just messing around in the studio and i'm excited to kind of be in free fall but it's not like depressing melancholy free fall <laughs> it's like it's kind of um just kind of looking around and enjoying mm -hmm. enjoying floating a bit um i would love to make some music i mean personally for me i think music's the best art form and, you know, I could just listen, like my ideal day would just be hanging out with people, listening to music. Um, so I'm excited about doing some of that. I'm like doing a mix right now for uh, um, something I'm doing in San Francisco next month. They'd asked me to bring along uh, a mix of music. So that's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, honestly, there's there's no direction right now. I'm kind of waiting for one. Yeah. I'd love to have a direction. That's what I love. I'd love to like <laughs> yeah. get get really psyched about something and go deep. Um, so I'm just kind of waiting for that to come along. I guess. How do you know when it comes? Because I think that's I'm in a similar state. I'm in between books, and I'm like, cool. Uh, you know, I'm not like you said, not depressed or melancholy, but it's like wondering when the next big idea will land. And I'm curious how you know what that is for you. I guess it's like messing around with a lot of stuff that's that's floating by. You're just mm -hmm. grabbing things and kind of like playing with them and putting them down and then just turning around and realizing that you've been messing with the same thing for some weeks in different different ways that this, the studio is full of um, printouts or images or sketches um, and they're all pointing in one direction. I don't know. I guess it kind of sneaks up on me. What's your relationship to thinking about, well, will people like this or what will the response be? Are you at a point in your career where you just truly don't care or are you also trying to gauge what will strike a chord in the market somehow um, or among fellow artists, let's say? Yeah, um, I get I mean, I definitely think about fellow artists a lot, um, but when it comes to making the work, I think it's less about um, audience than it is about like trying to do something to a certain standard mm -hmm. um you know my my own standard um whatever that is it's kind of part you know it's a moving target but um i guess i just have some kind of faith that if i'm into it that somebody somewhere else will be into it mm -hmm. um and and that's not always true <laughs> um but that's that's like the kind of operating principle um, that gets me going, you know, gets me getting into something. But I think you're right to mention artists. I mean, that's ultimately, if I had to pick somebody I'm making work for, it's for other artists. 
Is there any particular type of fellow artist that you feel no. like your people? Just and what no, are, no. How do you define I mean, an artist? Like what? What makes that community? Um, what makes an artist an artist? Well, I would say um, I'm making it first of all for like. There's no definition for this, but for serious artists, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean professional. It just means somebody who's. Um, Again, no definition here, but uh, you know, the, the artists I respect are not always artists where I like the work. Um, so it's it's I respect it when somebody's like serious about what they're doing. And that thing itself can be super playful and, and whimsical. I don't mean um, serious, like kind of furrowed brow, like um, darkness. I, I mean, like somebody's really committed into their thing. I mean, this could be like wood carving. It could be playing music. It could be uh, abstract painting. It, it doesn't really matter. Somebody who's open to wherever they're going with um, the kind of like radical play they're doing. They're writing rules when they need to and breaking them when they need to. Um, and they just keep going with it. And, could be somebody like Agnes Martin, who's just hunkering down and like painting um, in the desert. Um, could be somebody who's doing free music composition. It could be somebody who's who's playing uh, standards in the subway. It's just I don't I don't even know how to yeah. describe it, but it's just you know when somebody's really serious about their thing. Yeah. Um, and that's that's kind of what I respond to, I guess. I love that you you said and you've separated respecting people who are serious about their work, even in a playful way, without you having the pressure, you don't have to even like their work. You can still yeah, respect that's not what it's them about. and their yeah. process. I actually think that's really freeing and helpful for me to hear. Because I've read dozens of books now, I'm trying to understand the art world. But still, sometimes I'll show up at a contemporary art exhibit and be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, but that's sometimes the best when you go yeah. and you're like, what the hell is this? I mean, that's you know, another thing that I really like is, is precisely that is, um, you know, it could be somebody playing standards on the guitar again, but like, there's something about that where you're just like, what is going on with these songs? (laughs) Like, what are they doing here? Like, this is, I know that song, but for some reason I also don't know it. Um, and that's what would keep me coming back. And again, I'm let's, let's say I, there's something I really dislike about it, but I can't stop thinking about it. Um, I guess I would just want to disengage, taste and liking something wanting to live with it thinking it satisfies a certain quality those are all like less interesting to me mm-hmm. um i mean there's a place for that but um there's also the process of art making or just um a certain kind of being in the world that is that is serious and playful um and what what else is it it's it's throwing everything up in the air and letting it uh fall to the ground in a new shape. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all That's all where I'm going, what I'm interested in. On the idea of what you just said, ideas floating around and having them land in a new shape, your essay Dispersion was about the internet and the kind of the, the freedom now that their ideas, once they're released into the wild, they get cut and spliced and copied and pasted and downloaded and shared every which way. And whether as a writer or an artist or another type of creative, sometimes it can feel, and of course, there's the phrase, like, there's no new idea, or there's nothing original. So how do you define or think about originality in a context like that, where probably the second you think of something within the internet, within the norm's reach, 
you can see it's been done 10 times somehow. Or how do you still create what you feel is original work, even if it, I don't know, it's borrowing from so much that came before it somehow? Well, if you do something a second time, in other words, if you repeat something, um, it's already different, right? So the same person doing the exact same thing again, um, it's it's a different thing. I mean, there is, I don't think there is, I'm not too worried about um, the whole question of originality and, and um, it's, you know, the, the camera didn't make painting obsolete. Um, it's, people aren't going to stop making stuff. I think it's kind of like a non-question. I think mm-hmm. I understand why it's, there's this kind of, over the last 15 years, you know, when digital networks make the distribution of everything um, so disruptive to the industries, I understand why there's this paroxysm in society of like, what have we done and where is it going? And I, I totally understand why people are nervous about um, kind of um, their intellectual property. But as far as like questions of has everything been done before? Um, I, I kind of think that's just a non-question. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, you could do the exact same thing again. And it might mean something totally different um, to another person, but even to yourself. So uh, I, I'm just not worried about it. Mm-hmm. Any artists who are haven't yet arrived, let's say, at the level that you're at, it can be super discouraging. We live in New York City and... Well, no matter the type of art or the type of creative work, um, there are so many people who are happy to offer out that that's no way to earn a living and and to just have that dream sort of shot down. Like, well, and you kind of talk about this in um, your novel as well, that sometimes just the idea of being an artist is a little nutty because nobody needs a piece of art. Like it's not an economic good that people can't live without. Um, so it just seems like for artists and writers and creatives who want to make a full-time living out of it. They get, there's so many discouraging messages and then there's so many people trying to do it. So do you have any parting words of advice uh, or a, or a philosophy oh, on this? Yeah, I know it's a big one. Yeah. On just like entering the kind of like the maelstrom the of, fray. of like, yeah. yeah. And New York is, is definitely difficult and it's way more difficult than when I got here. Um, Huh. Well, if you, I don't know, I feel like you have to make art. Um, and then you may also want to make art, but those are like two different things. Um, and uh, making art is also separate from the art world. And it's separate from a career of art. Like those are all different things. And mm-hmm. of course, like ideally they all line up like, you make art, you have to make art, you love to make art, you have a career making art and you're within the art world. That's, that's like fantastic. And also fantastically, um, it's, it's, it's lucky to have that kind of those things align like that. But I think that, um, making art is also something that, uh, Oh God, no, I can't even go and go through that sense. I, <laughs> then what uh, got you through this process? Like what, what gave you the confidence to just keep going until you hit, started hitting these milestones that you could see, okay, yes, I can make a career out of it. Man, I, um, 
being around great people, mm-hmm. uh, meeting, um, meeting friends who are artists and like seeing how they kind of conducted themselves, even if we did completely different things. Mm. Um, that was crucial. Um, what else? Uh, making art for myself and my friends. I mean, with them in mind, I think that's, mm-hmm. that's like kind of how you build for how I was able to kind of build some, um, to build something because if, I don't know, but I, I would think that if you're making art for um, somebody outside of yourself, then right. um, ultimately it can, you can, that probably, you wind up wondering what the hell you're doing. Um, and I don't, I don't even want to talk about like the language of believing in yourself because I'm not sure what that means. But, <laughs> um, but I do think that, oh man, Jenny, I, this is like, this is super deep stuff. I don't, I don't know. Um, I wish I could offer some words of advice. I always feel like a fraud. Like, uh, um, ask me another question. Well, I love everything you shared. You're not a fraud. It's true. I feel I can relate. Um, I don't want to give a lot of business advice because partly I feel that I've just, it's a combination of grace and lucky breaks and, Yes, I put work out, but so much of it is just the serendipity of the universe. And I think each of us have a unique path and a unique way of getting there. So it is very hard to just say, oh, easy, just do X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, all of these aspiring artists in New York would be doing that. And everyone has to find their own path. And what you described, there's a blogger. Do you know the blog Wait But Why by Tim Urban? No. No. So it's a great, you'd love his writing and his thinking, moreover. But he talks about creating for a stadium. He picks one person and he multiplies them times 100,000 and he pictures them in a stadium. Maybe it's like him and a friend. Anyway, and <laughs> hold they on, no, the it's, like, it's like clones. It's like 100,000 yeah, exactly. clones of the same person. Exactly. So, okay. so then he creates for this person, but he's imagining a stadium full of. That one, or, or I think, you know, you could do this with like your top five favorite people that you're creating for. And they fill the entire stadium. So, okay, great. You have a hundred thousand people looking on, but they all have these personality characteristics. And that for him, that's, that's who he strives to create for no one else. And I love mm. that. So on this subject of career and trying to make it, I want to circle back to something that we were talking about, because again, I think this is one of the big conundrums for aspiring artists or those who aspire to do it full time. And you say in the novel, yes, art was a business. And this was the way common sense dictated you should run a business. But treating art this way was likely to render your product less interesting and less valuable, as it might prove to be the case with Damien Hirst. And you were saying, um, by the way, just to give some context, that um, it, it, you, you say a, a little earlier, it wasn't something attained by applying yourself, bringing your A game and putting your shoulder to the wheel. It wasn't crunching numbers or taking meetings or filling orders. Yes, art was a business, and this was the way common sense dictated you should run a business. But treating art this way was likely to render your product less interesting and less valuable, as might prove to be the case with Damien Hurst. Art was more like a hothouse flower that might grow, but might not, and no one could say why. Sudden intuitive steps and genius lateral moves might come about only and precisely because you were bored and restless, fiddling in the studio, aimlessly wandering, cruising the shows, scanning the magazines, perusing the blogs. And all of this diddling required sufficient 
time and space. And lastly, this was ironic because the goal of art had always been the abolition of time and space. Like religion, art was a pursuit of immateriality and the infinite, and the aim was transcendence. It's such mm-hmm. a beautiful juxtaposition that you, you've described. And we were talking about the mode you're in, kind of waiting for your next direction. And I think it must be challenging to juggle the career aspects, the business aspects, which are almost directly antithetical to total freedom to just let your mind wander. And as you say in this passage, ideas don't necessarily come in a linear fashion. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on that passage. And also, do you ever feel worried? Like, when is the idea going to land? Like, I've been wandering for too long. Do you get self-conscious about that? Um, I, uh, not, not so much anymore for some, I don't know. Um, like I was saying earlier that I'm in this chrysalis mode and I'm kind of floating, but luckily it's not like depressive floating. Cause I, I remember for some years I would finish a big project and then I would kind of get really melancholy and feel this like withdrawal. And I, I'm not, I mean, maybe it's just mood and something totally exterior to my artwork, but it's, I'm not doing that so much anymore. Um, Dad calls that the bliss crash. The bliss crash. Yeah, yeah. There's like a bliss state and you're so excited. And you've been working on this thing for so long. And then there's almost always a bliss crash just coming down off of that journey. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm trying to, uh, yeah. How do you navigate that? I don't know. I mean, that passage you read, it's like, there's, that's, that's a case where there's like things that I think about in there. And then there are things where like calling it um, like art as the pursuit of, of transcendence and the infinite or something. It's so corny. And like, I'm not even, don't even know if I believe that it was just kind of like wrote itself. And I felt like, (laughs) well, that's like good copy for like a new age retreat. But you know, I just left it in there just to see if maybe it is true. I don't know. One question you ask in the book is what would the art of the future look like if one could know it courtesy of a time machine? Do you have thoughts on this of where you see art going either for yourself or a Um, larger yeah, I think about this a lot. I mean, because sometimes you get hung up looking at the work of somebody who maybe was born, um, you know, 80 years ago or more. And, and it's you're looking at this artwork from 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whenever. And I suddenly sometimes think, but my God, the questions are all different now. Mm. Like, I mean, of course, there's some I mean, there's some people who would say that's not true. That's bullshit. The questions don't change. There's art is about eternal questions, but, but I don't actually, I mean, I I understand that there are things that you could argue are um, less changing from generation to generation, but I, I do feel like everything's different. I mean, I already feel like as an artist who, you know, my first show was, let's see, like 13, a little over 13 years ago, which doesn't feel like too long. On the other hand, it was um, it was before like social media really got going, and um, the world, the mediated world that we're in, we meaning you and I live in New York City. We're in the West. We're in this kind of relatively rich part of the world um, that's completely dependent on um, these technologies. I mean that that all feels different. I feel like God. I'm an artist who really started doing things in a previous era, so I can I can feel things shifting. Um, as far as art of the future, um, I'm sure it's going to be um, somewhat, conf- it would be confusing to see it. 
mm-hmm. um, confusing and nonsensical even. Um, but I mean, art is also just a lot of different conversations going on at the same time. So there's going to be, you know, different strata in the mm-hmm. future. There'll be things that look like they could have been made a hundred years ago. Um, so I, I mean, when you say art of the future, maybe you mean art that's kind of in some way socially or technologically cutting edge. So wonderful. Seth, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your thoughts, for your work. I really can't thank you enough. And please. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. And if you could give listeners one, I always like to give them one little assignment when they stop listening mm-hmm. to this podcast. What would it be? <laughs> bad. Make something <laughs> bad. No question. Like- awesome. <laughs> oh, man. That's such a good one. Okay. That's it. We're all going to do it. Make something all bad. All right. Great. So. Thank you again. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jenny.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, a curated twice-monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always? <laughs>